I'd like you to take the Word of God and open it with me to the book of Nehemiah. And as we did this morning, we're going to read two passages tonight. I, um, as the preacher tonight, I want to give you all a very warm welcome. I also want to thank you for giving us such a very warm welcome. My wife and I, uh, it's the first time we've, we've come to Northern Ireland uh, together, and the first time we've been to Points Pass, but uh, we already have grown to love you all, and uh, we've loved your pastor and his dear wife for many years. In fact, uh, we've, we've not been here in person, but we've been here through the live stream many times. In fact, my wife often will uh, be doing the dishes or something in the kitchen, and, and uh, she'll start playing the sermon that Pastor David Moore was preaching the previous Sunday here at the church. And then that'll entice me to come in the kitchen to listen as well. And I, that, that's her way of getting me to help with the dishes, of course, and things like that. But we, you have a, such a wonderful preacher. And we'll be uh, praying for this church. And, and, love, and very much uh, we love to begin a friendship tonight. But before we read, I just want to stop and think about what we just heard. Have we counted the cost? I often hear preachers say, have you counted the cost of serving the Lord, but have you counted the cost if your soul should be lost as well? Think about the value of a soul. If you were to boil down the chemicals in your body to the bare minerals that are there, they say that you would be worth 50p, 50 pence. That's how much you're worth to a pharmacist or to a chemist. But, of course, you're much, worth much more than 50p to your loved ones, to your family, But what are we worth to God? The Bible tells us, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What are you worth to God? The Bible says it's worth more than the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That word lost to perish, to, to be lost for eternity as far as being separated from God. But you should not perish, but have everlasting life. You can be found. You can, you can find the Lord and He can find you. And that's really what we're talking about when we think about spiritually the idea of fishing. Fishing for men. It's the most valuable thing you could, you could be involved in. The souls of men are worth eternity. And so as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 3, we'll read the first five verses, and then we'll turn to Matthew chapter 4. Nehemiah 3 and Matthew chapter 4. Verse 1, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it. Even unto the tower of Mia they sanctified it, unto the tower of Hananiel, and next unto him builded the men of Jericho, and next to them builded Zachar, the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassaniah build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kos, and next unto them repaired Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, 
And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Bena. And next unto them the Tokaites repaired. But their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. We'll come back there in a moment. But Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Verses 17 to 22. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. As we think tonight about these gates going around, around Jerusalem, we're going to see in this entire week the gospel in the gates. And there are themes throughout the scriptures that are represented here in these gates. There is a way to God. Come, come the way that he is prescribed. If you don't come through Christ, there's not another way. Jesus said, as Pastor Moore quoted at the end of this morning's service, I am the door. If any man enter in, he shall By me shall go in and out and find pasture. There's no other way into heaven but through Jesus. And the sheep gate shows us that through the sacrifice, the first gate, the sacrifice of Christ is the only way into heaven. I I didn't show it this morning, but we have a picture of what is is the sheep gate. And this was a picture of all the gates, actually. You can see the ten gates around the city of of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. And uh, as I said this morning, this, this series sort of sparked from when I was walking around Jerusalem with your pastor and we saw some of these old gates. You see the sheep gate at the top right, the northern, uh, uh, the northern gate into the city, and the sheep would come into that uh, pool of Bethesda. And as we think about the, I think I hear a sheep right now, bowing in the distance. But So this is just perfect for an object lesson this morning. But Uh, But as they came in, they would go to the pool of Bethesda, they would wash the sheep, and then they would bring them to the temple. And you see uh, the temple there in the middle of the the northern part of the city. Uh, When I uh, baptized folks in Peterborough, we do have a pool, but there was a man in our church in his 70s who wanted to be baptized in the river. And ever since then, just about everybody wants to be baptized in the river. So we found a great spot, which is where... They would wash the sheep in the river, an old site of where a farmer washed sheep. And that's where we, we baptized folks in the River Neen. And uh, did you know that uh, uh, this picture of coming through Christ, we, after we're saved, we should be thinking about baptism as well, shouldn't we? And I'm so excited to hear about these five being baptized next Sunday night, a week from tonight. And let me know if you're one of those five. I'd love to, to rejoice with you. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, come through the sheep gate, come through Christ, then get baptized, and then learn how to share your faith with others. 
And that's what we're going to look at. That's really the first thing that we should learn how to do is how to share our faith with others and become a, a fisher of men. But anyway, this is the picture. Uh, not, this is not a picture I took. This is uh, from many years ago. I just showed this one because there's some sheep going through that old gate. Now, the top part of the gate was rebuilt by a Muslim ruler um, of the city. And uh, he had a dream that lions were coming and attacking Jerusalem. So it's the sheep gate's now actually called the lion gate. And you see those lions on either side of the, the top of the arch. And we think about how the, the lamb, the, the, the lamb of God, as he came the first time, he came as a lamb. But the next time he comes into Jerusalem, he's going to come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, but you, you have to come through Christ. There's no other way. You don't just think, when I die, I'm just going to appear before the gates of heaven and say, I was a pretty good person. Why don't you let me in? If you didn't come through Christ, if your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, you're not going to get in. You have to come through him. I remember hearing a story from Victorian England. Uh, and you, you all might be familiar with uh, Buckingham Palace. Any, if you've been to London and you see the guards that are there. Well, in Victorian England, those guards were there then as well. And there was a little boy who wanted uh, some help for his mother who was sick and who was dying. And there was no NHS back then. So he went throughout all the area that he could find in London trying to find a doctor who would help his mother. And every single doctor turned him away. But finally, he thought, the queen can help me. So he, he, he walked up to the, to the gates of Buckingham Palace, and as they do, the guard, he tried to get the guard's attention, but the, guards, the guard didn't move a muscle. Just sort of looked down his nose at the young man, and he fell down on the ground, finally. And, and big tears were running down his muddy cheeks, and he was crying, and finally he heard a voice, boy, why are you crying? And he looked up, and there was a very posh, well-dressed young man, and he told the young man the story. And the young man took the boy by the hand and lifted him up and walked up to that same guard. And the guard stepped aside and opened the gate. And then they marched to the door of Buckingham Palace and, and they opened the door. And they marched up some more steps and they opened more doors until finally they were in the presence of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. And, and uh, the young man told the boy's story and she sent her own personal doctor to the young man Young, young man's mother, and, uh, and she survived. But what made the difference? Because that boy was the prince. It was the king's son. And, you know, they're not going to open up Buckingham Palace doors for you if you just march up to them and say, let me in. They're not going to do that in heaven either when you die. It's just as crazy to think that you're not going to be able to live in heaven, be part of the royal family, unless you know the son. And when we know Christ, when we know the Son, of course they'll open the gates for Him. So if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's the only way to begin everlasting life. And by the way, everlasting life doesn't begin when you die. It begins the moment you trust the everlasting One, the Lord Jesus, as your Savior. And then you not only have everlasting life in heaven, you have a relationship with Him already here on earth. And you can, have that, you can begin this wonderful journey uh, which we're beginning this evening. And then the very first thing you should want to do is tell other people about it. And so that's really what is represented here by the fish gate. Here is a picture I took. Um, my wife and I went with Brother Moore to Israel, uh, but uh, 
Earlier this year, my wife was turning 40 years old, and we wanted to see what we could do. And we looked on Skyscanner.net, and we saw $74 tickets to, to Tel Aviv from London. So we booked it, and we went, and we just went around exploring all the places by ourselves with our little girl. And uh, this is the fish gate. Do you see at the top is the modern-day fish gate? But at the bottom left is the original fish gate. And this is the gate where they bring all the fish from the Sea of Galilee, from the north. And they bring them down and have, they would have a market there. And even to this day, there's great big markets all outside of the fish. There's great stairs going down towards this gate, all around like a little amphitheater going down towards it. And you can see, uh, I, I, I kind of got a chance to sneak down there and take the picture with the old, uh, the old gate. And there's Natalie as well with our Indiana Jones hats on and things. But, um, uh, but can you imagine the market uh, that was here and, and people bringing their fruit? It would, it would have looked a bit like it does here in the church today. As people bring all of their things to sell. But uh, the biggest thing was those fish from the Sea of Galilee. Uh, directly, um, the Bible tells us it was uh, along the modern Damascus Road. This gate today is not called the Fish Gate. It's called the Damascus Gate. Did you know another thing that they say happened here? Some people say this is probably where they took Stephen out and stoned him out of the city gate and stoned him. Some people call it Stephen's Gate. But can you think about the Apostle Paul as he was standing out here and saw the witness of Stephen? And then a little, not too long after that, he was riding through this Damascus Gate breathing out threatenings, going to kill people north, uh, in the north in Damascus. And uh, he probably, as he marched through this gate, he probably thought about that spot where he had seen Stephen with his face towards heaven. And the Bible says his face shone like an angel as they were hurling stones at him. And he said, I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And I'm, I'm sure that convicted Saul as he rode out going to kill Christians in Damascus. But it was on that Damascus road that he met the Lord Jesus. And the man who hunted Christians realized he was, he was the hunted. He, the Lord was after him. And he, he came to Christ. And then he became one of the greatest fishers of men that there is. So I think a lot about this gate being a gate that represents evangelism. A gate that represents what it means to tell others about Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus said in Matthew 4.19, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. In July 2008, Bob Green of Hallowell, Maine, was having his morning coffee when he thought he heard someone crying for help. The call of distress came from a man bobbing in the Kennebec River. Green called 911 where the dispatcher told him, Walt, don't just stand there, throw something to him. Well, he grabbed his fishing pole and he cast out a line and he snagged the man's shirt with the fishing lure and he reeled him into safety to the shore where he rescued the man. And immediately he was taken to the Portland Hospital for, for care. But he was literally fishing for men. But we need to be fishing for men spiritually, rescuing them from eternal destruction. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you a fisher of men. If you, are, if you know Christ as your Savior and you're following him, then he will make you a fisher of men. If, you're, if you aren't uh, wanting someone else to know, then you must not be following Christ because you don't have his heart. 
just as Bob Green fished for a man, we can follow that example. But Christ has a heart for people who are drowning in this world. We have to be sensitive enough to hear that cry of people who need to be saved. He could have ignored Green, that man. He could have ignored the voice he heard. Uh, Second, you know, we not only need to be sensitive, we need to respond to that call for help. We need to change down our priorities. He had to lay down his cup of coffee and he had to grab his fishing pole. And then thirdly, he had to throw out the lifeline. We have to find some way, not only to be burdened and to pray and to take the time for it, but then we have to find a way to explain the gospel in a way that others will understand. This is, uh, this is just as people did for us. Explain it. And then we need to find a way to reel them in. They might want to get away from being rescued but, and get off that, that hook, if you will, but may the, Lord, may the Lord help to reel them in. We can pray that they will come to safety. That pray that they can receive Christ as their Savior. And then, uh, just as Green then turned him over to, uh, to get further help at the hospital, we need to have follow-up and see people growing in their faith. He wasn't just left on the shore. He was checked into a hospital. And that's really what a church should be. A hospital for, for sick people. Uh, we should help the saved person to get involved in fellowship with others. I often tell people when they trust Christ as their Savior, the first thing I tell them is, go and tell somebody about it. Not only does that get them started on the right track, but uh, then once they tell their, the, other, the others that they used to be with that they're saved, then the others are going to keep them accountable, saying, I thought you were a Christian now. <laughs> You're not supposed to be doing the same things that you used to be doing. But uh, when we're following Christ, this is a supernatural work. I don't, I don't even like to say the plan of salvation. I like to say the way of salvation. This is way, a, a way that we're saved. It's, a way, it's something that God does. Salvation is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Christ as your Savior? You should get more acquainted with Him. You should learn about Him and then learn so much that you can then tell other people. I always tell our Sunday school kids, we have afternoon Sunday school every week at 2.30, and I said, you should listen so well that you could be the teacher one day. And really, every one of us as Christians need to think about it that way. We should be able to tell others, don't, it's, don't be a dead-end Christian. The gospel has come to us. This gospel has come all the way down from the apostles who shared it with others, and they shared it with others, and they shared it with others from generation to generation, and now it's gotten to you and it's gotten to me. I don't want to be a dead-end Christian. My father shared the gospel with me, and I'll, it's now what am I going to do with it? I need to share it with someone else. There's a great, uh, a great principle in God's word about this. The principle is God wants everyone saved. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, when we witness to somebody, we can look them in the eye and we can say, Jesus died for you. God loves you. Some people, 
They don't believe that God wants all people to be saved. And they can't say Jesus loves you because they don't know if maybe he, they're one of the ones he does. But the Bible says he is willing that all should come to repentance. You can only witness to someone if you yourself are a witness. It's not about uh, witnessing, it's about who we are. If you have a testimony, you can share it with someone else. And I'm, I'm looking forward to all the testimonies we're going to hear this week. If you, are, if you do know the Christ is your Savior, but you've never shared your testimony, I encourage you to do so. The Bible says in Luke, ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. First, they, before they witnessed, he said, ye shall be witnesses. The noun comes before the verb. And he said, ye shall be witnesses unto me unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So the principle is God wants all to be saved. This is a principle even in the time of the temple being built here in Jerusalem. I think about how right here on the other side of this fish gate was the, the temple. And there wasn't just a market going on outside the gate. It got so bad that there was a market going on inside the court of the Gentiles as well. The Bible had, uh, has told us even in the Old Testament that all, God had a heart for all people. When Solomon had built that temple, when, he's, when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he said, he prayed to God, Lord, may the stranger come unto this place when they hear about you. And he, he prayed that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. That's why he dedicated the temple. And yet in Jesus' day, what was the court of the Gentiles being used for? Remember Jesus at 12 years old came into that place and he said, I must be about my father's business. What is God's business? Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So if you put Luke chapter 2 together and Luke chapter 19 together, you see that God's business is to seek and to save the lost. And in those porches of the temple, that's where Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. But then when he began his ministry, what did he do? What did he have to do when he came into those same porches of the court of the Gentiles? He drove out the money changers. They weren't doing God's business. They were about their own business. And so many of us, we are about our own business. We're not doing God's business. God's business is to seek the lost. So many of us, we, we, are, we don't bear any fruit for God. God gives us breath. He gives us life. Think about all these fruits and vegetables all around the room. And think about uh, how the sunshine, the rain, the soil, all is provided and yet, uh, imagine getting everything you need and then not doing anything with it, not bearing any fruit with it. The Lord Jesus said that that was a picture of Israel at that time. And he said, this is a, the, this is a house of prayer for, and he's quoting from Isaiah, which says, this is a house of prayer for all people. But then he says, but you have made it, and then he quotes from Jeremiah, you have made it a den of thieves, stealing something from others that, that they should be sharing with others. If you think about the temple on the other side of, uh, which used to be on the other side of this gate, they had that great court of the Gentiles with multicolored stones on the ground, great porches all around the edges, and right above the porches lived the priests. And what a great privilege they had. Every morning they could walk down the stairs and see people from all around the world 
and share about the one true God with them and about the way of redemption. And yet they were not doing that. Even, even in Jeremiah's they said, you've become a den of thieves. Isaiah said, this is a house of prayer for all people. But he went on to say, but you have become greedy dogs who love to slumber. Asleep on the job. Not doing God's business. Not uh, sharing the gospel with all people. In Peterborough, where we live, it's the, one of the fastest growing cities in England because uh, it's on the edge of the fens. People come from all over Eastern Europe and work on the fields, uh, which were, were drained. It was, used to be underwater. It was drained by King James I, and it became the breadbasket of England. And so people come from all around the world to work on the fens. And also, it's uh, only 45 minutes on the fast train from London. It takes two and a half hours to drive to London, but it takes 45 minutes on the train. So people are come from all around the world. You know, and every Monday, the uh, people from the open air mission would come to our city center and preach the gospel. And then when I showed up 10 years ago, they said, you know, no local Christians have ever come to join us in this city center here to preach the gospel. He said, you're the first, you're the first one that's ever, the first person from a local church to come and help us. And now uh, they have moved on to another uh, town, the town of Grantham, so that our church can take over uh, preaching the gospel on, on Mondays. But, you know, sometimes I, I feel on a Monday morning, I'd, maybe I just stay in bed today. You know? but, but, uh, but then I remember what a privilege that it is. You know, those priests could have just stayed in their beds while, while, while all people from all around the world came to the court of the Gentiles. But we have people from all around the world coming to our doorstep and we can share with them the gospel and yet, sometimes we just forget the, the urgency. We forget the value of human souls. So there's a principle. Uh, there's a principle here that we, can, uh, uh, we shouldn't just sit around telling fish stories. We need to get out uh, and become fishers of men. I heard one pastor say, pastors should be fishers of men and not keepers of the aquarium. <laughs> and uh, we, need to, we need to help others. To know what we know. Christianity is not a, a ball and chain. Uh, you know, we think about the freedom that we have in Christ. We're helping people to, to be rescued. You can put, they can put you in the worst prison, but Christ is with you there. You're free to witness anywhere. Paul was in prison and he still shared the gospel with people from all around the world. And to this day, we have his, his prison epistles. You can serve God because of what he's done for you. Again, not, not in order to get something from him. We don't serve God to be saved. We love him because he first loved us, as we heard sung tonight. It's, it's, there's a principle in God's word, but there's also a priority in God's word. The Lord gave the priority for these disciples. He gave them something to give their lives to. That was Jesus' priority. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I must be, he said, about my Father's business. At 12 years old, what are you going to do with your life? I remember at 12 years old, I went to Camp Joy in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I had been saved as a young boy. I knew I was going to heaven because my father had explained the gospel to me. And in my bunk bed, I had cried out to God for salvation. But then I went to this camp and Lee Robertson was in his 80s and he was preaching. Not only do you need to be saved, but you need to surrender your life to the Lord. And then you can decide to serve the Lord all the days of your life. But first you need to surrender. 
And I remember praying, God, I know I've been saved, but I've never surrendered to you. Uh, I didn't know what that might mean. I was very nervous about if I surrendered. What if, what if that means I have to be a preacher or something? I, I don't want to be a preacher. I was actually voted the most shy in the school that year. I don't know why they did that, best dressed and most likely to succeed. And I was voted most shy. But uh, I, I thought, well, even if it means if God wants me to be a preacher, I'm going to do so. I went to the haystack. I knelt down and I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. So I came back to my pastor in Maryville, Tennessee, and I said, I think God might want me to be a preacher. And he said, all right, Jonathan, you can preach this Wednesday night. And I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do? I thought I, I meant when I was older, and, uh, but, but I'm thankful for that encouragement that, that I received from people that were wanting to encourage me with that desire that I had to want to serve the Lord. Not only should it be a desire, it should be a priority. Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. Think about the urgency of it. When we were crossing the Atlantic Ocean, when we moved to England 10 years ago, uh, we came by ship. It was cheaper than a flight if you're going one way, and you can take all the bags that you want. We had 19 bags for free, packed into our cabin. And uh, the captain said that on the third day, he said, at at 3.15 in the morning, we're going to be passing right over the Titanic. We're the, the final resting place of the Titanic. So I set my alarm clock for 3 o'clock in the morning, and I climbed over our 19 suitcases, and I got to the deck, and, and uh, it was April, the same month the Titanic had sunk, and uh, I just was staring into the water. I was the only person up there at 3, three in the morning, but uh, I, I gripped it pretty tightly because I thought, how cold must that water be? Right down there is where, and then I remembered, right down in this spot is where John Harper was swimming from person to person saying, are you saved? Are you saved? He was a preacher. He was on board the Titanic with his daughter, uh, Francis, uh, or Nana, sorry, his daughter's name was Nana. And he put his daughter on the boat. His wife had died, but he put his daughter onto a lifeboat and he said, daddy has some work to do. And he kissed her and, and went back and went from person to person on the deck saying, Are you saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Some witnesses said that it was John Harper that said to the orchestra, Play something more appropriate. I can't remember what, what it was they were playing, but they started playing something like, near, I believe it was Nearer My God to Thee. And as John Harper was witnessing, they were playing this song. We're, he, we're very near to eternity here. And as the ship went down, he he kept at it. He swam from person to person. One particular man, he swam past him three times and shared the gospel with him. And on the third time, he said, are you saved yet? And he said, no. And he said, well, then you need this more than I do. And he gave him his life jacket. And he told him, believe on the Lord Jesus. And he tried to swim to the next person, but he was too weak. And the man with the life jacket then saw John Harper sink beneath the waves. But in the prayer room this evening, someone was, someone was praying and they said, help the preacher to pray as a dying man, to preach as a dying man to dying men. And I thought again about John Harper and I thought, I remember standing on the deck and praying this prayer, God help me to have the same urgency that John Harper had. When I get to England, I don't know how long I'll be in England. And there was a church with three people 
uh, there in Peterborough that we had heard about and that needed help. And, but I said, God, however long I'm there, help me to have that same urgency to go from person to person, just trying to explain to them as clearly as I can how it, what it means to be saved. What about you? What about you tonight? Are you saved? What does that mean? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Saved from eternity in hell. What is the value of a soul? How valuable is a soul? Just look at the cross. How wicked is sin? Look at the cross and it'll tell you. But it'll also tell you what it took to save you. Christ's love is so great. He died for each one of us. But are we going to see this harvest? This, we have a wonderful harvest that we can rejoice in. But what about the spiritual harvest? What about the spiritual harvest of souls that will live forever? These will perish one day. These fruits and vegetables will, will perish. They're perishable. But you're perishable also in this body. But your soul will live on forever and ever and ever. And on that harvest, will you be, will you be saved on that day? When... Um, Count Zinzendorf was looking at a painting one day of Christ on the cross. He looked down beneath it and there was a caption. And the caption said, All this have I done for thee. What hast thou done for me? And he, he was, his heart was smitten. And he said, I can do something for the Lord. And he started a missionary movement. He thought, what can I do in response? How can I respond to God? This morning we spoke about being thankful that Jesus has provided the way of salvation. We're thankful for food, yes. We're thankful for a roof over our head and shoes on our feet. Sometimes people are so ungrateful, aren't they? I remember coming to um, a harvest service one time and everyone was bringing their, their, all the vegetables and things. And I brought Donuts, because the Krispy Kreme donut had just opened up in Peterborough. And they, oh, typical American bringing donuts. But I wanted to use it as a kid's talk. And, and I taught the kids, you know, what's in the middle of this? It's a hole, isn't it? But, uh, but what's all around it? And I said, so many people, they just focus on the hole. They focus on what they don't have. And so I told them, all, all through life, make this your goal. Remember the donut and not the hole. And, you know, so many times we think about what, what this life, all the negatives about this life, all the things that we don't have in this life. But what do we have? We have a Savior. And we should be praising God. We should, as we finish the sermon this morning, we should be rejoicing in the God of our salvation. And what better way can we rejoice and be, show our thankfulness for Jesus than to give Him something in return? And so Count Zinzendorf said, He's done this all for me. He's the one that saved me. I couldn't save myself with all my wealth. But he said, but I can incur, I can do something back. And what can we do to say thank you for our salvation? Count Zinsdorf had it right. He started a missionary movement. And the Moravian missionaries went around the world preaching the gospel. Uh, and under that, under that uh, uh, banner and with that encouragement. But there was a certain island that uh, they couldn't get to. They wanted to go to an island uh, with some plantations on it. And uh, only slaves were on their way to that island. And they asked the owner of the island, can we send some missionaries there to preach the gospel to them? 
They don't know about our Savior. They don't know about Christ. And the owner was an atheist and he said, no, there's no way any missionaries are ever coming to my island. And so these two young missionaries said, well, what if we sell ourselves to you as slaves? And he said, well, if you're crazy enough to do that, I'll I'll take you. And so they got on the ship and they packed their belongings in coffins, so the story goes, because they knew they'd never see their families again. And they got on the boat and all of their loved ones came to the docks and they were waving them goodbye with their handkerchiefs. And as the ship started going off into the distance, they heard the two missionaries shout back uh, this, this, this shout, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And that became the watchword for the Moravian missionaries around the world. But you know, Christ, he did all of this. He suffered for us. He's opened up the gate for all of us to go in through him. What can we do to say thank you? May there be a harvest of souls for his honor and glory. It's a great privilege to serve the Lord. It's a great privilege. Israel was so privileged. They were in the middle of three continents. They could bear fruit uh, from people around the world as they came by on those great highways. God put them right there in the middle of the world. And yet Jesus said in Isaiah chapter 5, I believe it is, I looked to see if you would bear fruit and you bear grapes and you just bore wild grapes. And then he said, what more could I have done for you that I have not done for you? What a convicting question. What more could God have done for us? And the answer is nothing. We're such a privileged people. We couldn't say, oh God, if you just gave us a better book. No, we have a perfect book. He gave us uh, uh, the Bible. He gave us the church. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us all the resources we need. It's a privilege to be involved in this work. But we're personally accountable for this work as well. Each person who built around this wall had to build their own section. Many times it said they built near their own house. And it has to start at home, doesn't it? The the Bible tells us that that, uh, they were next to one another, all working together to build this. But some people didn't take the responsibility. Look at verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 3. It says, and next unto them, the the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their neck to the work of their Lord. There were noble men who said, that's not my job. I'm going to let somebody else do it. No, we're all personally accountable to bear fruit and to, to, to be involved in fishing for men. All of us, one day we'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ and you won't get to stand there with the whole church. They'll, they'll be there. You're, even your pastor, he'll have to be accountable for himself. And it, it, the Bible does say that we are to bear fruit together as a, as a congregation. But you'll stand there for what part did you have with the opportunities God gave you? I remember in Sunday school, one of our teachers once put on the bulletin board a big uh, display of, of fruit and fruit trees. And it said, bloom where God has planted you. The Bible says in Proverbs 11, verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. And Psalm 1 talks about being a tree planted by the rivers of water that beareth fruit in his season. Now, if you're never sowing the seed, if you're never doing those things, you're never going to bear fruit. If you never put the line out, you're never going to catch a fish. 
And now you're not going to catch a fish every time you go fishing, but you're never going to catch a fish if you never go fishing for sure. And so may the Lord help us to get out there where we are and bloom where God has planted us. When I surrendered to preach, my pastor let me preach once a year from then on. But, uh, but he said, why don't you go find some other opportunities uh, as well? And I was, I was going to a secular public school at the, towards the end of my education. And I'd gone to a Christian school all the way up until then, but it stopped uh, short of, of gradu- uh, where we could graduate. So I went the last two years to the secular public school. And I'd already surrendered to the Lord to serve him. So my dad thought, well, maybe, maybe he can survive going to the secular school. So I went, I got on the big yellow bus and I rode to school and, uh, and I came home that day and my dad said, what was it like? I said, it was terrible. They had knives on the bus. They were spitting chewing tobacco on me. They were cursing and swearing. All of, and uh, he said, well, you're always talking about being a missionary one day. Why don't you be a missionary? <laughs> and I remember uh, the next day I climbed up to the apple orchard after school. That was uh, above, above look, overlooking the school. It was September, uh, towards the beginning of the year. And I remember praying, God, if you want me to be here, help me to be a missionary here. I didn't know anybody. And so that, that next, the next morning, I was looking around at lunch, and I saw one person praying for their food. And I sat next to them, a Chinese man named Julian. He said, we, we have a Bible study, but the guy leading it's going to graduate and we've got nobody to, you know, to lead it. And so he and I decided we we're going to lead this Bible study. And so every day we'd meet at eight o'clock and school started at, at 830. And I got to really learn how to preach at the public school. And by the time we graduated, we had about 100 people coming and, and uh, people would call me uh, when they wanted to, you know, commit suicide or something. And I was learning how to help people and Point them to, to Christ. And, you know, but wherever you are, whether it's in your school, bear fruit there, at your job, in your neighborhood, bloom where God has planted you. We're all personally accountable in this work, but there's also a purpose to this work. And the purpose is for God to receive glory. The purpose is not for us to say, well, look, how, look what I've caught. Look, who, look at this person that I I led to Christ. So the purpose is, the Bible says in John chapter 15, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. It's for God to receive the glory. And the Bible says in John chapter 12, it says, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die... It bringeth forth much fruit. Let's die to ourselves. Let's get involved in this wonderful work of seeing people know about our Savior. You know, may the Lord help us to have that same urgency that John Harper did and see we have this life to either accept or reject Jesus Christ. And every person you see has an eternal soul that will live forever somewhere. Every person you see will spend eternity in heaven or in hell the value of these souls. And these men that got involved with following Christ, he made them fishers of men. And they left something that was temporary. They were doing their own business, but then they got to do God's business, which lasted so much longer and was so meaningful. Yes, Jesus did become a carpenter after he was 12 years old, but he said, the main job I have in life 
is I must be about my father's business. And so whatever else you do, make sure that is your priority because we have eternity, as Amy Carmichael said, we have eternity to sing about the victories that we win for Christ, but we only have this short hour before sunset to win those victories.